Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. Want to uh, welcome you here. We are virtually packed out here today. Uh, the Bixby's, the Blair's, the Bartolomeo's would be over there, Curry's and Brown's. Um, Julie Jones, her crowd, Mel Butzakaris, of course. The reality is very few of us are here in the building right now as we are scattered across uh, town right now. Um, but to give you a sense of Easter here, I have invited a group of highly trained, very respected theologians and their support staff to um, give you a sense of the scripture at this uh, most significant Easter. So pay attention. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. After the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alone. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going to see you in Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Let's pray for a second. Lord, I ask that you would unveil your scripture to us today, that you would speak your word, and that we would be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank all my theologians who helped out this morning, and uh, we are praying for Tim Ryder that that purple object eventually got withdrawn from your nostril at some point in time, I hope. Um, I want to talk to you today about the sign of the cross. This was planned actually for quite some time as part of a series that we had that we actually um, disrupted uh, with all the other disruptions that were taking place. So I want to talk to you about the sign of the cross. Um, if I were to read something right now, how would you finish this? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and... Okay, now a bunch of you said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Another group of you said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this is one of the ways that I know the crowd I'm talking to. Um, because if you were raised and had any Catholic background, you're going to read it one way. And if you have uh, a Protestant background, you'll read it another way. Um, this prayer talks about thy kingdom come. It talks about thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And I want you to kind of have that fixed in your mind. What, what Jesus was teaching us to pray is thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. One of the other ways, though, that I know who is of a Catholic background is at a funeral, um, if I close out the funeral and say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then inevitably those who are Catholic, um, I think that's more orthodox than Catholic, will cross themselves as referred to as the sign of the cross. That's not exactly what I want to talk to you about today, but it leads us towards it. What I want to talk to you about a little bit is the literal sign that would have been on the cross. Now, this is a symbol of it, I-N-R-I, and that basically stands uh, in one of the several languages that would have been written there for Jesus Nazareth of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So if you ever wondered what I-N-R-I stood for, it's kind of a shorthand um, for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And this comes from John chapter 19, verses 19 through 20. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so this sign would have been up when Jesus was being crucified. In John chapter 18, preceding this, there was a little bit of a dialogue that Pilate, the Roman governor, has with Jesus. He goes in the palace in the 18th chapter and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Because they're saying that he's kind of a rebel of some type. Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate says, am I a Jewish person? You know, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And he was talking about God's rulership, which is what a kingdom is really about, invading this earth to eventually take over this earth and run it the way it was supposed to be run. He says, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate just says, what is truth? And he kind of rejects the whole concept that there can be any kind of reality as far as truth is concerned. We know Jesus dies after this point in time, and he's resurrected, and that's what we celebrate here today. What I want to kind of unpack a little bit more is this whole discussion about him being a king, and how did this come into play? We find in John chapter 1, when Jesus begins his ministry, and John the Baptist encounters him, he says the, that as he sees Jesus coming towards him, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we discussed over the last week or two, and a lot of times in the season we talk about this lamb that was slain when the, uh, uh, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and the blood was smeared over the doorposts and, and the angel of death passed over that house 
when he saw that unblemished male lamb and its blood spread over that doorpost and, and there was no death that came to that house. And for 1,300 plus years, the Jews celebrated Passover. Then Jesus comes along in the Last Supper as a Passover meal where that lamb would have been present and he makes it clear to the disciples um, what's been during the whole line. This whole thing was to point towards Jesus as the lamb of God, this male lamb, unblemished, no sin, whose blood was going to be shed in such a way on a wooden frame that the angel of death would pass over, that this sacrifice would be good for everything. They'd sacrificed for generation upon generation millions of animals as symbols pointing towards this one time, this one place, this one person, Jesus Christ, whose blood and death was going to pay for the sin of all mankind. There's no need for any other sacrifices. That's why we don't have any bloody sacrifices going on in our worship. That one sacrifice took care of everything and, and covered mankind back to the garden. Um, and so when John says this, okay, so he's the Lamb of God. A little later, he uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. He has the power, evidently, to raise people back to life again. And this happens just a week or two before his own crucifixion, and he enters into Jerusalem. And he says to one of the sisters of Lazarus, he says to her in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he says, do you believe this? And he challenges her. Then he resurrects Lazarus. This person seems to be not just a lamb, a sacrificial person, but also one who has a power, authority of some type. And then as we read last week, John chapter 12, as he goes in, this great crowd had come for this Passover festival. They heard he was on his way to Jerusalem. By this point, he's a rock star. And they took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And so this is all the stuff that's leading up to then later this, that week, this past season of time where he's then executed and they put up this sign on the cross saying that he's the king of the Jews and it was meant to be mocking both of the Jews and, and of Jesus. They take a crown of thorns and thrust it on his forehead and that was meant to be mocking. Uh, the very title, king of the Jews, was one that Herod, who actually ruled a portion of Israel, under Roman authority, had wanted that title and never been given it. So when Pilate does this, he's even taking a shot at Herod. You know, you're not the king of the Jews here. This figure, this broken figure, is in fact now the king of the Jews. And there's a crown of thorns placed on his head. It's interesting, in this season of time, as we're being struck by this coronavirus, um, which incidentally has no association to the beer whatsoever, it's actually associated because uh, some of the scientists saw the figure of it to the microscope and it looked like a crown. And in Latin, that came out as corona. And so they called it coronavirus because it's a crown-shaped virus. This crown-shaped virus, this thing that causes death, this crown of thorns upon Jesus' head that was ridiculing him. But there was something deeper here. It wasn't just the Lamb of God. He has an authority over life and death. And we find that after his death, as our theologians read to us, he comes back to life. He's the only person by themselves ever to have just come back to life. Kings generally don't do that. 
He was 33 years old at the time. Well, there was another king that was once called great. He was powerful and proud. Nothing and no one could stand against him. He actually took the entire world by storm and conquered the majority of the known, if not the entire known world, at least according to the West at that time. And he was 32 years of age when he achieved that. And he mourned the fact that there was nothing else to conquer. He was ruler of the world, worshipped as a god. His name was Alexander, and they called him the Great Alexander died at age 32, just a few months prior to the age of what Christ dies at. This great king, this one who ruled everything and was worshipped as a god, died and, according to all reports, has continued to stay dead up until this day. But Jesus, who's called the Lamb of God to sacrifice, seems to have an authority over death, is mockingly called the king of the Jews. At one point in time when he's entering Jerusalem, when, when people say, hey, they, they shouldn't be saying this to you, he says, look, if they don't say this, the very rocks are going to cry out. Creation recognized him as the ruler and ultimate authority. We've turned to the state authorities or the federal authorities or the CDC or the World Health Organization. We're looking for some authority, someone to, to guide, to, to win victory, to help us in this fight against this virus. Everyone's always been looking for some authority. And yet Jesus comes as that authority. And in Revelations chapter 17, 14, there's an interesting passage. It talks about those who are going to fight against the Lamb. But then it says the lamb will triumph over them. And then it looks this way. Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. And we see an integration here now between this lamb that's to be sacrificed and this person who has such authority, such power, that they're called the Lord of lords. They're called the king over all of the kings a type of emperor that all other um, people bow down to, even other rulers bow down to. And what are some of the traits of this ruler? It says in Luke chapter 19, 10, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that he came to reach for those that were lost. In John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, it says he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him, his own people. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but, but born of God. Jesus has this kind of authority. He has this kind of ability. One of the things that's happened during this season, I've been told, that as the entire world has ground to a halt over this pandemic, is that the people who are in lockdown have looked up in some of the urban, heavy city areas and begin to notice a clearer, cleaner, sparkling night sky that some of them are seeing the awe-inspiring scattering of stars that for some of them as urban dwellers have never seen before. One of the things I guess I would hope during this Easter season as we sit in the places that we're at as the pollution of all that's around us kind of clears away for a bit, that we would be able to see more clearly the awe-inspiring aspect of not Jesus just as a sacrifice, not Jesus just as this quiet one who's executed, 
but as one who is victorious over death, has an authority and a power, who is in fact a king. One writer, George Monbiot, from, uh, writes in The Guardian, a, an English newspaper, says, we've been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. In the rich nations, he writes, we have begun to believe that we have transcended the material world. The wealth we've accumulated, often at the expense of others, he says, has shielded us from reality. It's been a pollution across the sky. Living behind screens, passing between capsules, he writes, our houses, cars, offices, and shopping malls. We persuaded ourselves that contingency had retreated, that we had reached the point all civilizations have sought throughout time, insulation from natural hazards. He goes on to write, now the membrane has ruptured and we find ourselves naked and outraged as the biology we appear to have banished storms through our lives. The temptation when this pandemic has passed, he says, will be to find another bubble. We cannot afford to succumb to it, to that temptation, he says. From now on, we should expose our minds to the painful realities we have denied for too long as we have quieted ourselves and, and the air has cleared that perhaps we can see clearly our need beyond the things that we've wrapped ourselves and insulated ourselves with, that we begin to let God intrude into our lives, not just as this meek and mild sacrifice, but as one who has overcome death, who has the authority of a king, who is Lord of lords, king of kings, ruler over everything, and has great authority to not only forgive our sins, but to fight on our behalf to rescue and restore. John Kasich, recent presidential candidate, former governor of Ohio, has, as he's been sequestered and quiet, has had um, uh, some things develop in his own heart and mind. And he wrote this just recently, religion for me is not a mind game. I've learned to play to help me answer some of life's unanswerable questions. This is not a workaround or a get out of jail free card. I choose to play when things get tough, he said. No, this is me knowing with dead solid certainty that we are graced by the most powerful being to ever exist in the universe, who cares for us, who cares for our families, who cares about what we do and how we live our lives and the footprints we mean to leave behind. He does. Absolutely, he does. John goes on to write, and if you come to embrace this truth as I have come to embrace this truth, you can internalize it and grow from it. It can give you the hope and strength and confidence you need to get to the other side of even an unknowing, unknowable difficulty such as this one and to somehow emerge all the better for it. He concludes this way, right now I am in a hopeful place because I do know that we will get through this. And given the opportunity, it allows me to figure out what is really important and where my real treasures are. What is really important and where my real treasures are. What is really important to you? As you sit in your homes as you have the moment to be quiet and, and to actually reflect upon your life as the haze of pollution that is gathered in your reality clears and for the first time possibly, are you able to see the, 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 the glittering beauty of who God is and the reality, the stark reality that surrounds us? Lord of lords and King of kings, 
At the same time, Lamb of God sacrificed for the world who comes to seek and save the lost, who comes to adopt us and, and transform who we are. It's unreal how this even unfolds. If he's king of kings and lord of lords, then why the whole issue of death? Yeah, there's a sacrifice part, but, but I'm always struck a little bit by, by um, an event. It happened in January 6, 1066. Harold II is crowned king of England. And September 25, just a few months later, in the same year, the king of Norway um, invades up north, and so he marches all his troops, King Harold up there, and he defeats them only at the end of the battle to find out that a guy named William had, had come in from the south and had come across from Normandy, from France. And so on October 14, King Harold II, not even a year into his reign, engages William in combat at the Battle of Hastings. As the battle reaches its height, Harold is struck down. Once he is struck down, everybody scatters. William from this point referred to as William the Conqueror, takes control of England, and he never releases it. Whether it's in war or whether it's in playing chess, we know that to lose the king is to lose everything. In World War II, when they wanted to invade Normandy, this time the, uh, the British with their American allies coming back across the channel in the fight against the Nazis, Winston Churchill, who was Prime Minister of England, desperately wanted to go with the invading force. He was just a hands-on, uh, uh, energetic kind of guy, and he was going to go on, and he was overriding everybody, including Eisenhower, who was in charge of the invasion, the Allied commander. So the Allied commander, Eisenhower, knowing the danger of losing Winston Churchill, what could that could mean, turns to King George VI of England and brings him into the equation, and King George says, Winston, if you're going to do this, then I will go with you, because Winston is just immovable in this. King George says, I'll go with you then, and it's only at that point that Winston pulls away and, and lets go of his desire and dream to go with the Allied forces in that invasion. Why? Because he realizes that he can't risk the king of England, that when the king dies, Everything is lost. The people scatter. That's how William becomes the conqueror at that point in time. And so to Satan's eye, it would have seemed to be an incredible victory to have had finally Jesus Christ in this simple form to be able to dominate, control, and actually execute him. There would have been a great sense of victory that they may have had. The king has fallen Therefore, now we are the conquerors. We control. We will have domination. And mankind will never be released from their sin and from the pollution that fogs their eyes and fogs their very souls. But Satan's knowledge is limited. He is not God. There's only one God. And Satan isn't it. And he fails to realize what, what C.S. Lewis writes in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book that, that kind of portraits Jesus' sacrifice only now as a lion named Aslan and as the children watch him being executed on the stone table and, and all the evil triumphs over it and then charges off to go and destroy the rest of goodness that's in the, the land. 
As the children are grieving at one point in time, the dawn comes and when it comes, the, the table cracks with a loud sound and as they go and look, the lion has disappeared and, and then they turn around and he's there bigger and brighter and more glowing and shining and stronger than ever before and they're amazed at this resurrection of their hero, this one who represents Jesus Christ. And they said, but how is this possible? We saw you die. The king had died. The king was done. Someone else had conquered. Victory seems to be in the hands of that which is evil and dark rules. And he says to them that even though the evil ones thought they knew things, and it's true about how they could kill someone, what they didn't realize was this, he says, that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, no sin, was killed in a traitor's stead, that the table, in fact, would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Our king came in the form of a man at age 33, having ministered for three years, knowing what the goal was, enters Jerusalem. The very rocks would have cried out if everyone else had stayed silent. He faces and places himself under the authority of men, Pilate and others. They mock him. They put a crown of thorns. They beat him. They crucify him. And evil thinks that it's one. But they didn't realize. They didn't realize just quite what they had done. And so things begin to work backwards. And Jesus comes out of the grave victorious to this day. I only have a few more thoughts I want to share with you this morning. One of them comes out of Mark Twain's novel, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. It tells the adventures of just an ordinary guy, a Connecticut Yankee in the 19th century who's thrown back in time in King Arthur's period. And um, he gets with King Arthur and he, he, he convinces King Arthur to go amongst the people dressed as a peasant to get to know them. And, and a lot of funny things happen because the king's kind of oblivious to life in the trenches. He tries to carry on the pomp of the court while he's still hanging out. But there's one chapter titled The Smallpox Hut. It describes how the king and, and this companion of his come upon a beggar's hovel. The husband lies dead, and the wife tries to warn him away, basically saying smallpox is here. It's, there's an illness here, and we're, we're dying. We're under a curse. We're under a curse. And the king replies, let me come in and help you. You are sick and in trouble. And the woman asks the king to go into the loft and check on their child. And here's how Twain writes it. It was a desperate place for him to be in, and it might cost him his life, observes the Yankee. But it was no use to argue with him. The king disappears up a ladder looking for the girl. There was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other. He came forward into the light, and upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15. She was but half conscious. She was dying of smallpox. Twain writes, here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed, with all the odds against the challenger. No reward set upon the contest and no admiring world in silks and cloth of gold to gaze and applaud. And yet the king's bearing was as serenely brave as it had always been in these cheaper contests where the knight meets knight in equal fight and clothed in protecting steel. 
He was great now. Sublimely great. The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have an addition I would see to that. It would not be a mailed king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. And there is Jesus, friends, on the cross. A king in commoner's garb bearing sinners in his arms. Not just risking death, but actually incurring death to restore us to him. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of mankind. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, who all who claimed him as king, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but, but born of God. In 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful. He is faithful and just. And he'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. On this Easter holiday, this time of remembering death, but also remembering resurrection, to realize that, that he wasn't just the Lamb of God, but that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to know that Jesus Christ has the authority to speak into your life and the mind and to bring transformation and change. I'd have you consider this this morning. In Tolkien's Return of the King, there's this scene that, that has Aragorn, this king. He's the rightful king of, of the West. He's long labored in obscurity and he's foregone the kingly comforts to serve his subjects and fight their battles and has repeatedly risked his life for them. And at last he prevails over the forces of darkness and everything that's ugly. And he comes to the, the major fortified city of Minas Tirith. For the first time, though, he comes now as king. And the city steward proclaims Aragorn's royal pedigree for all the citizens to hear. And he, he has this long list of how he's the wielder of this sword and he's the protector of that and he's the bearer of this and he's the son of this person and all the things. And he finishes with this statement. Shall he be king and enter into the city to dwell there? Will he be king? Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there and rule over us and all the people with loud acclamation knowing that he's the one who's rescued them, that he's one of authority and power and healing in his hands, all acclaim him as king and lord. I would say to you in this final moment that there was another king, not just the lamb of God, not just one who walked amongst us as God, but he was a king who labored in obscurity, unheralded, humbly serving the people over whom he had every right to reign, and many did not recognize him. He laid down his life for him, for you and for me. But his authority was always his. And today he claims the throne of our lives. What will you do with that this Easter? As we sit here and the corona, this crown afflicts us, even as the crown afflicted Jesus of thorns, can you this morning recognize that he was also king of kings and lord of lords, that, that, that his crown is an authority over everything, including whatever sickness is in your life? 
whatever can attack or assault you. Today, he claims his throne and scripture acclaims him this way. Here is Jesus the Christ, the second Adam. The first one got it wrong. The second one gets it right. First one screwed everything up and gets us all in trouble. The second one restores it all. The bright and morning star, the first and the last, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, mighty second person of the Trinity, son of David, son of man, word of God incarnate, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. So finally, I'd ask you this morning, shall he enter our hearts? Shall he enter our church and dwell here? The king died. Alexander, to this day, stays dead. Julius Caesar, Harold, even William the Conqueror, all have died, and to this day they stay dead. But Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the sign on the cross, the sign of the cross was true. He was not just king of the Jews. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He dies, but with that authority rises up to show that he has the power over life and death. Shall he enter our hearts, our homes? Will he be our king? Will we follow his laws? Will we accept his mercy? Will we be his people? I pray this morning that the pollution would clear out of your eyes, that you'd be able to see Jesus for who he truly is, that you'd also see, we would see our own sin and our failings. I invite you this morning just to pray with me for a moment. Father, we are a scattered people today, but we are still one in you. There are those, Lord, who may be looking at this right now, though, who are not followers of you at all. And God, I pray this morning on this Easter, as they consider who you are, as the pollution clears out of their eyes and they see you for truth who you are, as the king who holds them, even in their sickness, in your arms, all that you risked, all that you laid down, but also all of who you are, and the authority you have, that as they accept that this morning and lay their sins down at your feet, as they claim you as Lord and King, as they recognize you for who you truly are, that, Lord, this Easter, this day, especially this day, in the midst of the darkness we face, that their lives would be transformed by your grace, by your truth, by the authority of you, Jesus Christ. Lord of lords, king of kings, ruler of all. And so, Lord, this morning, we come before you quietly. We just wait on you. I'm asking right now, wherever you're at, if you just close your eyes for a moment, if you haven't already, there's nobody looking around you right now. You're in the privacy of your home. This morning, if you want to receive Christ not just as a good teacher, not just as a moral leader, but as king of kings, Lord, as the ruler of your life, as the one who sacrificed all for you, 
who conquered death, who guarantees you a future in his kingdom for eternity. If you're wanting to do that, then just raise your hands up before him. Nobody else is looking at you. And just say, Jesus, forgive me. All my sin, clear the pollution and the sin out of my life. Let my eyes see you clearly. This morning, this Easter, in the quietness of my own home, I receive you. I receive you not just as the Lamb of God slain for my sin, but I also receive you as my King, my Lord, the ruler of my life. Guide my life. Direct me. Show me how to live the way you intended me to live. Let your kingdom come, not just to the world, but to this, my home, to this, my heart, my life. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. I have something I want to share with you. If you've made that prayer either now or in the past, something kind of special. On Good Friday, we referenced a writer named S.M. Lockridge. He also was a speaker, and he eloquently talked about the beauty of Jesus Christ as King. And now that we've reached this point in our gathering of celebration, we felt it would be appropriate. I, I just don't think, to be honest, guys, that I can properly channel this great orator and pastor. We're not done yet, not by a long shot. There's still several things. We won't be done until you see Forrest Gump, and I'll explain that. But now, if you've accepted Christ, this is to give you a little detail of the character of the one whom you've committed your life to. S.M. Lockridge. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's endurance strong.
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us even now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, virus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King. This is an unprecedented Easter. But so was the very first one. Father, we give you honor and praise today. Not just for the sacrifice of your son, but, but where that ultimately took of redemption for all of us. And so this morning, we lift up the name of Jesus Christ Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and we honor you this day. We will strive even in the midst of this crisis to serve you faithfully and honestly, to love those around us with the same grace and love that you gave us. We turn to you as the final authority in all that we deal with. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And wherever you're at right now, you just say, Amen. Now we have one other thing that we've done over the years. Years back, we were involved with Russia for a number of years, before, during, and after communism. We got involved with the Russian Orthodox Church, and one of the traditions there at Easter would be to have a three-pronged uh, um, greeting. 
where the priest would say or the leader of the assembly would say, Christ is risen. And the congregation responds back, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, this is a tradition we've had and we're not going to stop it here today. So wherever you're at in your home, especially if you're alone, you can shout as loud as you want. But even if with the kids, it's going to be on the screen, your response. And so you respond to me. I'm going to say, Christ is risen. And you're going to respond, he's risen indeed. And the gang here is going to help me out as well too. So here's our statement of affirmation today on this Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It gets louder now. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Loud as you can now. Christ is risen. He is risen risen indeed. Hallelujah and amen to that. Wherever you're at, here's one or two final notes. One is that traditionally in the Russian greeting, this would be followed after this kind of statement with a triple kiss, one on each side of the cheeks. So wherever you're at, if you got someone near you there, grab them and kiss them. Assuming you're in your house isolated and you're okay. We thank you for being with us. Um, according to the governor, we've been renewed for a couple more weeks. Um, we have a generous sponsor. Um, and so I hope that you continue to join us as we continue this journey. Uh, as we wrap up here today, we have one final um, uh, Easter greeting from our family life pastor, uh, Jeff Brown. Thank you. Happy Easter. Be safe. We'll see you next week. I just wanted to take this time to wish all of my Rock Point family friends a very happy Easter. So, happy Easter. Bye.